We are going to start a new series today. As you see up on the screen, a series called Journey to the Cross. And uh, we just wrapped up our old series, as was mentioned a couple times, Back to the Basics. And Chris did a great job uh, preaching last week. Thanks for doing that. As he mentioned, we were out of town. Uh, we went in the opposite direction of most for a vacation. I know there's some that have made some trips down to Florida, to Disney World. Uh, me and Mandy, uh, our Disney World is being on a frozen lake and a little hut for two days and uh, catching a bunch of fish. So how timely as well with the Sunday School lesson, um, we, we caught a lot of fish. And uh, you know, some have asked, who caught the bigger fish? I know Mandy, I say Mandy always catches the bigger fish. Um, I don't want to mention his name of who caught the bigger fish this time between the two of us. Just, I don't want him to get arrogant and conceited or anything like that. Um, but no, we had, a, we had a great time away. Uh, but today, the this, this series we're starting, Journey to the Cross, uh, we're, we're really looking at the last moments of Jesus, his last uh, moments with his disciples and the final days as he is on this last leg of the journey to the cross. And primarily speaking, in this series, we're going to be looking at the last 24 hours of Christ. Uh, today, we'll be looking a bit before that, but we find ourselves today in the season of Lent, and it's something that many of us probably grew up observing and, and uh, doing year after year, and it can mean a lot of different things to different people. You might think of the Wednesday night soup, uh, you might think of the Friday night fish fries, or the time for 40 days that you give something up, uh, but it's really so much more than that. Lent is a season that's set aside to focus on Jesus and the cross. It's all the, le- all the events that led to his crucifixion and his resurrection. And we understand the importance of studying and reflecting on these last days, that all of history really hinges on the moments that happened in this week. Everything before that, uh, from the first sin to the promise of a Savior, uh, to all the promises of God and his covenants, the prophecies, they are all wrapped up All these foreshadows were pointing to this one week, the cross and the resurrection. And everything after this moment has changed. We live in the new covenant because of what happened. And so as we study this, we're going to start at the beginning of that story in Matthew 26, if you want to open up your Bibles to that now. We'll be reading uh, the first 13 verses. But my prayer really through this series is that we gain a deeper understanding and appreciation for what Jesus did on the cross, and that we can grow closer to him through it. So join me in prayer as uh, we just commit this time to the Lord and, and ask God to speak to us through his scripture. So Lord, we thank you for this season of Lent, this time to remember your journey to the cross. And uh, as we study the scripture today, knowing that this is really the transition point, the, the time that you uh, began to focus solely on the cross, uh, God, help us to understand the price that you paid, the love that you showed, and that we understand there is no other example of this in the history of the world, that you loved us so deeply and so dearly you went to the cross. So I pray, Lord, that we can love you back in a similar way. So bless this time. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit and your word. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's read together Matthew 26, uh, verses 1 through 13. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover 
is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. When Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, when she poured on, which she poured on his head, and he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Well, as I said, the text we just read really gives us the hinge point, the beginning of the end, so to speak. And we read that as he had finished these things, these things he was saying to the disciples, he makes a prediction of the cross, and it's not really a prediction, it's more of an announcement of exactly what would happen. And we observe two important things here. And the first, that this is a key transition point in the ministry of Jesus. From this point out in the Gospels, Jesus no longer has his teaching ministry. And what he just wrapped up, what he just finished saying was the second longest example, or the second longest written example of his teaching in the Bible is what we know of as the Olivet Discourse, or this private moment of teaching with his disciples in the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is within sight of the temple, right there in Jerusalem. And he's giving these lessons, many of them we know, many of them we just studied this summer in our, our parables series. Uh, he's talking about things like the, the watchful servants and the parable of the talents, the sheep and the goats. And there's a consistent theme through all of us that he, all of this that he's speaking to the disciples, that he'll be leaving soon, but he'll be coming back. And it's possible the disciples didn't quite understand what he's getting at. And so he gives them a more specific statement of what is going to happen in verse 2. And many times through the Gospels, this is actually his fourth time that he tells his disciples that he will die, but never has there been a moment more clear and concise than this moment in verse 2. This is where he clearly announces when, where, why, and how he will die. He says that he'll be at the Passover, or that the Passover is two days away. This is really when and where he'll die. And the Passover was something they celebrated every single year at the same time. It was, it was a long festivity that concluded with the night of Passover. Passover is kind of like their Christmas. And technically, it could be observed anywhere, but really the center of Passover was Jerusalem. 
And so he's explaining to the disciples that he will die on Passover in Jerusalem. And this is fitting because Passover was the commemoration of God delivering the Israelites from Egypt. That God did all he did through Moses, through the plagues, through the Red Sea miracle, to deliver them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And it really gets its name from the last plague, that when God took the firstborn of all Uh, the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians, that the Israelites were spared. All the households were spared when the blood of the lamb was on the doorposts. It was the shedding of blood that spared them, that made the spirit of death pass over their house. And here's where we see that Jesus would fulfill all the Passovers, that he would become the great Passover lamb, that his blood would not just spare a nation from earthly slavery, but would spare the world from eternal slavery. And this was no coincidence. This is such a poetic way for Jesus to announce his death, but it's very clear when and where it would happen. He also explains why this would happen when he calls himself the Son of Man. And this is one of the favorite titles of Jesus for himself. He called himself many things, but most frequently, the Son of Man. And this idea was found in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. It's one that talks specifically about the Messiah. And we read that the Son of Man will enter God's presence, will be given authority, glory, and sovereign power. So when he calls himself the Son of Man that's about to die, he makes it very clear that he has all authority and power as the Messiah. Why did Jesus die? Well, it wasn't because his life was taken from him. It's because he willingly gave it, even in his own authority and power. It was an act of sacrifice. He died of his own accord. But now when he explains how, this is something the disciples have not yet heard, that he will be handed over to be crucified. This is something that would shake them to their core because it reveals two things to them. And first, that Jesus would be handed over is him explaining that he would be betrayed. Betrayed by his own people. Betrayed by the people he loved, the people he came to save. That he'd be crucified, and this explained to them who would be killing Jesus. The only people in the land who crucified on the cross at this time were the Romans. It also explains that he would die in a terrible and agonizing way, that his death would be one on the cross reserved for a criminal. We're sometimes numb to the idea of Jesus dying on the cross because we have one hanging in our church. We have them hanging around our necks. It's this idea, the symbol of hope and love and peace, but for them it was a terrible, terrible thing to see and to think about. Now Jesus is explaining to his disciples how he'll die, that he's betrayed, that he's crucified on the criminal's cross by the Romans, the ones that many thought Jesus was coming to overtake, that he would clean the land of the Romans, so to speak, and and restore to Israel their political and earthly power. But he's saying, no, those Romans are the ones that are going to kill me. It's a very clear prediction of the cross, and Jesus is now transferring his energy and his focus to that very cross. 
But knowing this, verse 2, is really important as we understand Jesus and what makes him special. And last week, Chris talked about the idea of sharing the true Jesus with people. That oftentimes, people understand the concept of Jesus, that he was a good teacher, that he could perform miracles, that he was a moral man, and all of those things are true. There's no greater teacher, there's no greater miracle worker, and there's no more moral man than Jesus. But that's not what made him the Messiah. What made him the Messiah was dying on the cross and resurrecting again. That's what made him the Son of Man. This is an important verse for the disciples, for us to wrap their minds around who Jesus is and what he came to do. We come away with two clear observations. That first, the cross was not a surprise for Jesus. This was not a shock to him. He knew this was the plan all along. He knew that this teaching ministry is over and he is now in a new ministry to be the great Passover lamb for the people he came to save. And now he's concentrating on that. And every paragraph we'll read from this series in the next two chapters is going to reveal to us and lead to us the cross that Jesus would go to. We also understand that Jesus was fully in control. His life was not taken from him. It was given for us. And Jesus was totally free. He went willingly to the cross. Now, it's important to have that understanding when we read the next part, which is the plot of the priests. And this is really in verses 3, 4, and 5. We understand that they're now scheming. They're coming up with this plan to really get Jesus and take care of this man. The plot thickens, so they think. Jesus knew it all along. He just predicted it. But we see some key players here in this in this story, first are the high priests of the land. And these are people that go above the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus had so much interaction with in the Gospels. They were going straight to the top. And often throughout the Gospels, we see them drop hints that they don't want Jesus there. They challenged and debated him. They attempted at times to capture him, but Jesus just kept coming back. And now they want this final plan to rid of him once and for all. And then they talk about Caiaphas, the high priest. Someone we'll be talking about more in this series. But Caiaphas was a master of political and priestly maneuvering. He had self-interest in mind, first and foremost. And he was a genius at pleasing people. He could keep happy both the Romans, who occupied his land, and, and his people, whom he served. See, the history books tell us that when Rome came into Palestine, one of the first things they did when they considered the Jewish people was their highest office, the high priest. The first thing they did is they moved it from a lifetime appointment, which it was all the way back to Aaron, and now they made it a yearly appointment with the hopes of disrupting this power and keeping any one person from rising up. But Caiaphas somehow through all of that kept his job for 18 years straight. He was really good at pleasing everyone and very good at self-preservation. So Caiaphas views this Jesus guy as a threat to himself and to his power. And we see these 
this group come together, not to challenge or debate Jesus, not to just simply move him out, but to extinguish him. We understand now that they were fueled by hatred of Jesus. And they devised this plan to capture and kill Jesus. They were being very creative, so they thought, but Jesus knew it was coming. Now, what we see here is that their plan really reveals their hatred of Jesus. Because on the surface, they're saying they're trying to preserve the law. They're trying to preserve the system that was set in place by God. But their very plan that they devised is in contradiction with the law. You cannot secretly meet to to execute someone, to be the jury. It's something that was done publicly. And you certainly can't kill someone before they're convicted. And that's the irony of all this, that there's such a hatred of Jesus that they went beyond and in conflict of the law that they claimed they were protecting. And you also see their need to please people, to fear people. And they said, we can't do it during the festival because there may be a riot among the people. They did not fear God, they feared people. They feared what this would look like to the Romans and their position of power could be stripped from them. And at the time of Passover, Jerusalem was filled with over two million people, many of them pilgrims from outside the city. And these people, as we know, heard of Jesus. They heard of this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead and all of the teachings and the miracles that Jesus had done. At this point in the story, there were thousands that lined the streets to hail Jesus as king, as we refer to as Palm Sunday. So, and they're, they're in quite this problem, this conundrum. We've got to get Jesus while he's here, but we can't do it in a way that sacrifices what we have. Well, the answer wasn't what they were expecting. It's in text we didn't read this morning, but it's right after in verses 14 through 16 that Judas, one of the twelve, comes to the priest in his own initiative. He lays down a stone-cold business proposition to them. He basically says, what is Jesus worth to you? I can get him. I can get him to you. What would you give me? And the wager they made was 30 pieces of silver, which is kind of an insult to Jesus. That's, that's the cost that you would pay as restitution if you injured or killed someone's slave. But there they carefully counted this out, that Jesus would be, live, be delivered to the high priests by Judas after he betrayed them. We don't know why Jesus did this. We, we know from the other Gospels that he was a lover of money, that he often would steal from the very money bag that he collected for. Maybe it was jealousy of the other disciples that it was fishermen that became the de facto leaders of the group. Maybe he thought Jesus would be someone else. He thought Jesus was coming to be what many others did, that he was coming to establish this political control and power in the land. But instead, he just heard that Jesus would be killed by the very Romans. Maybe he was just trying to hop off the sinking ship, so to speak. That if Jesus said this is going to happen to him, well, what's going to happen to the disciples? And do I want to be a part of that group? In short, we don't know why Judas did what he did, but it's clear that any motivations would have been completely selfish. He betrayed him at that insulting price of 30 pieces of silver. But all of this, this scheme, this plot, the priests and Judas was not 
a surprise to Jesus. He was in control. He knew exactly what was about to happen. We see that this is such a striking contrast to the story that we're about to read next, that the sustained hatred of these priests and this terrible betrayal of Judas, the sandwich between those stories is a story of extravagant love and sacrifice, of a woman who loved Jesus so much that she gave up her costliest treasure. We see here in verses 6 through 13 the story of this woman who had this alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on the head of Jesus. Now, it's important to view this story in context of all the other Gospels as well. Uh, This is recorded in the book of Mark and in John. And we have some details filled in for us here. And first is the timing of this story. Now, in the book of John, we understand that this is actually before the triumphal entry. That would have happened days before what we just read. So this is kind of a flashback moment of what happened in the town of Bethany. We understand that the the people here are explained. Here we read about Simon the leper. But in uh, Mark and in John, we understand that Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were also there. This is shortly after the time that Lazarus was raised from the dead. We know that the woman that's spoken about here is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. This is the same Mary who, uh, when uh, Jesus came to their house for dinner, this is Mary, uh, Mary's sister Martha was fussing with all the details, but Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to his teaching. She knew the importance of being with Jesus. It's the same Mary that when Lazarus had died and Jesus came into town, she bolted from the disciples who were trying to comfort her. They noticed that it's kind of strange how quickly she ran away, They thought that she was going to to grieve over her brother Lazarus, but no, she went, she ran to collapse at the feet of Jesus and sob. This is the very act that led to Jesus weeping as well. We understand through all this that Mary knew who Jesus was. She knew how precious her time was with him, and it led her to this moment, this beautiful moment of extravagant love as Jesus is preparing for the cross. We understand that this act of love was costly, it was carefree, and it was committed. You see, the jar that she broke to pour the oil on Jesus was this alabaster. It's an ornate jar that comes from the east. And in the book of Mark, we understand that it was worth a year's wages. In our context, average, that's fifty dollars to $60,000 that this jar would be worth. It's also got this sentimental value. It's probably a, a family heirloom that had been passed down for generations. It's all imported from the East and very rare. And she was committed in this act of love because the way these jars worked, it's not like a mason jar where you can take off the lid and put it back on. You had to break it open because it was completely sealed. And once it was open, you had to use all of the contents inside of that jar. And it was carefree as she poured it on Jesus with reckless abandon. And the other Gospels tell us that it dripped down and covered his hair and even dripped down into his feet. This is in such contrast to Judas, who said, what's Jesus worth to you? And in such a mechanical way, he counted out his 30 pieces of silver and went on his way. Why this act of love? Why this perfume? 
Now, it's hard to understand culturally why this is loving, because if I went to one of your houses for dinner and you took a jug of olive oil and poured it on me, I would wonder what I did wrong. But it's clear here that this is an anointing of Jesus. It was a common act to anoint the head of oil, uh, anoint the head, of, head with oil of the guest of honor. And Jesus was the Messiah, or as we know, the anointed one, after all. Mary is now anointing him and, and confirming such. But this is really a solemn point to the death of Jesus that was coming. And it's clear that Mary understood this as Jesus talks more about this act. But what's interesting is that though this was such an extravagant act of love, the disciples objected to it. They didn't understand it. So when they saw this, they were indignant, and they're saying, why this waste? They knew how much it was worth. And here she's just pouring it all over Jesus. And this isn't something that was totally off base. They're saying you could have used that for something so much more. You could have sold that and given it to the poor. And so understand, this is consistent with the teaching of Jesus. He's the one who said you should always take care of the poor and the needy and the marginalized. And the very last uh, point of teaching was the parable of the sheep and the goats, that he says, when you take care of the least of these, you're taking care of me, you're loving me as well. But we, what's interesting about this is that the disciples didn't mean for Jesus to hear this critique. We see in verse 10 that Jesus became aware of this. This is kind of a side conversation. And the different Gospels explain who was saying this. And here it just says the disciples. In Mark it says some of the disciples. And in John it says it was Judas. Judas said, we could have used that money for something good, but we understand Judas was the one that was often stealing from the money bag. We don't know exactly who was saying these things, but it's clear that none of the disciples opposed this sentiment. Nobody spoke up to defend Mary and what she'd done. It's clear that they were more concerned with the material worth of this perfume than what it represented. That's when Jesus defends Mary. He, he understands that, yes, the concern for the poor is admirable, but it's a question of your priorities. He doesn't play down the importance of giving to the poor, but he explains proper motivation. That devotion to Jesus himself must precede and inform all other important and godly agendas in our life. And so he defends her great demonstration of love. In verses 10 and 11, he offers insight and foresight of this situation. He says, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. And so in this moment when the disciples could only see the material waste, Jesus saw into this moment the very heart of Mary and what had happened Understand that God sees more than our outward actions. God knows our hearts and our intentions behind those very actions. And kind of an, an opposite example, we remember in the book of Mark when you know, one of the great times as a Jewish believer was to give money to the poor to this collection. This is kind of a keystone event. It's something they're honored to do. And 
we see this, this moment when all these rich and wealthy people were giving these large, exorbitant sums into this collection, and then this poor widow comes along and puts in a couple of copper coins worth just a few cents. Jesus makes a point of this example to his disciples. He says, you see what that woman just did? She gave more than any other person here. She gave everything she had. And Jesus understood the heart, the motivation, and the intentions of that woman. And in the same way, Jesus sees of Mary that this act is a once-in-a-lifetime demonstration of her sacrificial love of Jesus. And he says, it is beautiful. But he also speaks foresight into the situation. In verse 11, he says, you're always going to have the poor and the needy around you, but you won't always have me. You'll always have things to do and lists on your agenda, but don't forget me. And this isn't an excuse to do nothing, but this is an, this is an example of always recognizing Jesus in what you do. And so in another word, Mary understood exactly what was happening with Jesus. She knew that he was there for just a short time, and this is her last moment with him. As we understand for us that our duty to Christ should not be reduced to rigid regulations and rote duties, but rather we need to leave room for these spontaneous expressions of love and worship and devotion to Jesus. Above all, Jesus desires our love, not our duty. Now we understand in the last two verses today that this is really a preparation. This is Jesus being prepared for the cross in a private way that would lead one day to a worldwide, worldwide proclamation. It's part of what we're doing right now as we gather. See, he says that she was putting the perfume on his body as a way to prepare him for burial. This is the final moment before the cross. And in the Jewish custom, the anointing of the body was one that was done after death. So this probably didn't make sense to the disciples why he would say this. But there's one exception in which they didn't anoint the body after death. It was when you died as a criminal. So now Mary, knowing what is to come, as Jesus says, anoints his body for burial now because he won't have the chance when he's handed over to the Romans. Jesus was aware of what would happen. It appears Mary was aware of what would happen, but the disciples were not. She was preparing him for death. And what gets really interesting here, and where the story of God is so perfect, is when we understand what kind of perfume this was, it was a perfume that came from the east that was designed specifically or was used specifically for anointing dead bodies. It's one called myrrh. That kind of myrrh. The same myrrh we read in Matthew chapter 2 when the magi from the east gave their gifts to the newborn Jesus. We don't understand culturally how that would have been weird, but they gave to Jesus a gift that was meant for death. It appears at that moment they knew that Jesus was born to die. And that same myrrh, not the exact same, but the same kind of myrrh, was used now by Mary to anoint him for burial. She was doing her part to honor him before he died. And Jesus says, this 
will lead to a worldwide proclamation that wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told. Now, this probably sounds like bad news to the disciples. You're going to die. But then he says, this is the gospel, this is the good news that will be preached. Jesus knew the other side of death. He knew he would resurrect and would lead to the creation of the church where we proclaim that gospel. This wasn't the end of the movement in many ways. It was the beginning of his movement, and it would be shared around the world. And as we gather today, it's interesting that we fulfill exactly what he predicted. We're talking about what Mary did in her extravagant act of love. We learn from this that we, we can't miss the opportunities to love Jesus because of our own agendas and priorities and understanding. We get so swept up in the ways we believe things should go that sometimes we miss Jesus when he's there with us in the midst of things. We know that there's some who will always consider following Jesus and loving Jesus a waste. The disciples didn't understand what Mary did. In many ways, people of the world don't understand what, why we do what we do. And I remember when I was in high school feeling the calling toward ministry. There's an exchange student I knew from Italy who was openly atheistic. And we had great conversations from time to time in the topics of spirituality and Christianity. And I told him I, I wanted to go into ministry. I was going to go to college for ministry. And he looked at me and said, what a waste. What a waste. It led to an interesting conversation, but I basically responded, you know, I'd, I'd rather live for God and find out one day that I wasted part of my life than to live for myself and found out one day that I lost all of it. People won't understand why you love God, but we must always have that, that opportunity, that, 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 that foresight to take advantage of those times we have with Jesus. We do everything out of love and devotion for him. What we read today is really the beginning of the end. It's the prediction that Jesus knew. Before he even came, he knew this would be the end. It was the will of the Father that he lovingly submitted to. And there's these priests, and there's Caiaphas, and there's others who thought that they were being smart. They thought they were going to really get him this time, but they were actually just fulfilling the will of God. But as we read today now, in Mary's amazing act of love for Jesus, she gave a great deal Virtually everything she had, we understand this is nothing compared to what Jesus gave for us. So let's ask ourselves, it's something I asked myself this week in preparing, something I hope you think about too. What would you sacrifice for Jesus? What would you give him? More importantly, what are you holding on to? What is it that you consider of such great value that you couldn't even give it for Jesus? You can't offer it in your love and your worship to him. Would you give it away for him? Would you let go of it? Would you give it to him? As we consider this journey to the cross, as we continue on it through the next few weeks, I'd, we'll discover that there's no greater sacrifice in this world than what Jesus did for us. God showed his amazing and extravagant love for us on that cross. When his body was broken, when his blood was poured out for you. 
My prayer is that when we truly understand God's extravagant love for us, we'll love him in a similar way, holding nothing back. Let's conclude in prayer today. God, we thank you for this story, this example. And God, I do pray that we remember in this season all you've done on the cross and in your resurrection and that, that it gives us life, that it gives us life to the full. So God, I pray that we continue to find ways to love you more, to give everything we have. I pray for all of us who are holding on to that one thing or that handful of things that we value more than you, that we would give that up. Knowing, God, it, fail, it, it pales in comparison to what you've done for us on the cross. So draw us near to you now in this season. God, help us to love you more. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.